if I can't figure out a way to make five figures on a wholesale deal, I'm not going to do it. It's too much work. All right, this is your host, Paul DeCampo, with another expert interview from realestateaudios.com. And today we'll be talking to an Atlanta wholesaler. He's dabbled in a few different niches, and he's sort of a jack-of-all-trades while doing it as a one-man show. So if you're struggling to close deals or getting outbeat by competition in a competitive market, then this should be an interview you should tune into because he'll be talking about how he uses creative finance to tie up these deals some of the weird niches that he's made money from, how he stands out in a competitive market, how he finds his deals, and how he even sells his contracts right there on the spot for top dollar using auctions, and how he farms his own backyard. So let's tune into that. But before we do, if you're looking for unique ways to generate leads and close deals, then you might want to check out my free report called Deal Finders Bag 23 Unique Ways for Finding Deals. You can grab that on my site along with a free daily newsletter at realestateaudios.com. All right, let's get to the interview. How many years experience do you have? Oh, I think I started doing real estate, um, single family residential right around 2009, 2010. And then prior to that, I was doing real estate in terms of timber leases and stuff like that with a, a Christmas tree business that I used to have. But my, you know, my family background, my dad used to work in the restaurant business and he was in charge of real estate then. So I've always kind of had it in the back of my mind that real estate's a really good way to, well, a challenging way to make money. But if you do it the right way, you can uh, harvest some rewards from it as well. Yes. And what market are you in right now? I'm in Atlanta. Atlanta. Have you always been in that market? For the most part, I try and stick pretty close to home. When I was doing timber leases, I was up in North Carolina doing it uh, in the mountains up there. But for the most part, everything's been in in Atlanta. What do you mean by timber leases? Because that sounds familiar. When I was doing some, when I was flipping some land, there were mm-hmm. some people that would do some timber. I don't know what they did exactly, but can you explain what timber leasing is? Sure. Timber leasing is where you lease property for the specific purpose of growing timber on it. Now, back in the 1980s and 1990s, this was a really big industry, especially down south. There was a lot of people who said you need to invest in timberland and invest in pulpwood for making paper and two by fours and and stuff like that. And they they way overplanted it. And so it became it could have been a good investment, but too many people got into it. And I got in on the on the flip side of that when people were trying to get out, but I was working mostly with a very specific type of timber, which was Christmas trees. And and I kind of always had a Christmas tree business that I'm actually not doing too much of it anymore. But for the first from 2000 to about very recently, 2017, I was very involved in the Christmas tree industry. And there was a lot of Christmas tree farmers who were 60 to 70 years old and didn't have a retirement, had too many trees in the ground. So right around 2006 to 2009, I went on a timber buying spree. Hmm. Worked out all right, but it's a, uh, I was very involved with it. It was not a, I would consider myself an active Christmas tree farmer during that period. Uh, it was not a passive investment by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, okay. Interesting. So you you, you actually did own the lots and, and releasing them out? I leased the land 
on which to grow the Christmas trees. But you didn't own the lo- the land. I did not own the land. Okay. And that was that was the nice part about it was that you didn't have to own the property. You could cut really good deals with the landowners because they they want the tax write off to have the the crops in the ground. So you could really do leases where it says, "Hey, listen, I'll grow these trees for you and I'll maintain them. And if we ever actually get to the point where I put the saw to them, I'll pay you." X percentage. And and then it all comes down to how good are you? And a lot of these guys who were big time landowners up there, they just said, yeah, we can make however much money you want. We just want the tax write off. We want to be able to uh, be able to get the preferred millage rate on the property taxes by having this ground under cultivation. So it it worked well. And I I think that opportunity is still out there right now for somebody doing it, but you got to think it through. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, that's basically master leasing then. Yeah, it is. Exactly. If you really want to get back to it, it's it's sharecropping basically from back in the day. But yeah, I mean, it's a master lease. And as I said, it was probably the first time in the South ever that, that people could make money sharecropping. But uh, <laughs> I did uh, I did all right with it. It was it was pretty good. It's uh, it's very labor intensive, though, and you have to you got to really know what you're what you're doing to, to make it work. But there's there's still people around right now doing, you know, timber deals and, you know, they're great investments for IRA or a, or a self-directed retirement account. If provided you get, you have a grower who knows what he's doing, they can be good investments. Who did you learn this from? <laughs> All right. Kind of like anything, man. I, I worked my way into it backwards. We were, uh, at the time, my business partners and I had had our, our retail operation uh, doing Christmas trees in the Atlanta market. And we were constantly having to go up to North Carolina and buy Christmas trees. And all I noticed was that all the farmers were 65, 70 years old and they, they had no no plan to get out of it. And eventually just said, you know, hey, look, you know, if you want to retire, how about I give you a little bit of money and not that much money <laughs> and, and I'll take care of these trees. And just like the deal with the landowner, it was like, yeah, when we cut these, I'll pay you. I'll take over the costs of it, but I'm not going to pay any money until we actually we actually do the harvest. And on that really narrow spread between what I could eventually sell them for in Atlanta and uh, what I could get them for on the other side, there was you know, there was a dollar or two to be made. And if you multiply that by several thousands, when you're cutting a lot of trees, it, it adds up to some significant change. This is like a whole n- it's a, episode. It's, a, yeah, it's an entirely separate thing. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting. Maybe I'll have you on some other time just to talk about lim- uh, timber leasing. That seems really interesting. But you don't do that today. I know that, right? No, I don't. I, it's uh, It got to be too labor intensive on my part. And I, I enjoy single family a lot more. It's a little bit more, the spreads are better. You can make some more money with it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's similar to what, what you're talking about with land flipping and stuff like that. It's very akin to it. Currently, you're doing wholesaling. Does that strategy change for you from time to time, from market to market? I think it does. I mean, I, I'm a very reluctant wholesaler. Uh, it became, I don't even really think I got serious about wholesaling until about uh, two or three years ago, something like that, where I was, I do a lot of farming in my area and, you know, looking around for, for deals and stuff like that. And I got a hold of one in a nice area of Atlanta and I had it at a right price. And I was sort of going down my, my road, just saying, all right, I'm going to turn this into a buy and hold rental. It's going to require a $30,000 renovation and, you know, new plumbing. And, and do this and do that. And 
then at the one of my friends who I was talking to about this said, you know what you might want to think about doing is why don't you why don't you take a for sale sign and put it up front and see what happens. And sure enough, I mean, I had people just coming out of the woodwork and I made a, a great wholesale fee off this quick little flip. And I didn't really have to do that to, to do all that much to the house and just really the ringing the bell and, and getting a lot of investors out there. It was just a great quick deal. And, and since then, I've been kind of I never try and go into an opportunity saying this is what I'm going to do, but a lot of the times with what the seller wants and what I want at that particular amount of time, it just ends up being a wholesale deal. By wholesaling, you're meaning uh, you're signing the, the contracts, right? Or are you actually buying them? I use an option contract. So if you work backwards on any purchase and sale agreement, if you if you put enough subject twos in there, you can make it an option contract. But I pretty much usually specifically get an option and say, hey, this is this is my option to buy and here's my purchase and sale contract attached to it. And this is how it will go down. And I still give myself a lot of contingencies to make sure that it's all going to work the way I want it to work. Well, the option itself, I mean, that gives you the contingency of itself, right? So you're transparent with that, with the seller saying that, hey, I have an option to buy this rather than I'm going to buy this tomorrow. I tell them all the time, you know, hey, listen, here's what I want. I might buy this. If this all comes, if the stars align and I can make this all make sense, I will buy this. So to protect you, Mr. Seller, to protect myself, let's just make this an option. It's a right to buy. I'm not obligated to buy this. And for the most part, these people are in a situation where they're not too, they just want to make sure that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And I always have. That's what makes the the most amount of sense is using an option contract. You know, you can do it where you assign your purchase and sale agreement and stuff like that. I, I'm usually kind of reluctant to do that just because I don't know who the other guy is going to end up being. But it's obviously, it can make sense. Uh, if you trust the other guy on the other side of the of the table. Do you usually have a buyer already in mind? Not usually. I like to do something, if wholesale is the way that I'm going to do it, I try and arrange it. I tell people, look, I need 30 days to get this really rolling. And, you know, and I usually stretch it out to somewhere between 90 and 120. And then I will look on the calendar and figure out when the next foreclosure auction is going to take place. And I end up going to the courthouses to a couple of counties around the surrounding area and hand out flyers there. I hand out flyers all around the neighborhood. I put signs up everywhere uh, as much as possible. I try and just get the word out so that I have a whole collection of investors and then hold an open house and let them come in. And uh, and that's it works great. I mean, you, you have investors competing with one another to hand you money. <laughs> Interesting. So, so you, yeah. you'll have an open house, you know, a couple, and then you'll have them, all these buyers in at the house at the same time? Usually, generally speaking, yeah. I call it a, you have to be careful because you can't call it an auction, but I call it a high offer sale. So make an offer and we'll see what we can do in terms of making this be an actual lead it to closing. Right then and there, you'll you'll do an auction at the open house. Well, you have to be very careful about what you call it. You can't call these things an auction. If an auctioneer hears you using an auction, you're not a licensed so-and-so, mm. you, you can get in trouble. So I call it a high offer sale. You're allowed to make a non-binding offer. You can get it sold right then and there with at the open house? Pretty darn quick. You have to be careful in this market. There's a lot of people who, and I put it specifically into my contracts, you, know, you can't daisy chain this. I'm not looking for you to go and then 
you know, just flip it to somebody else and flip it to somebody else. That just drags the whole thing out. Can you explain the daisy chain real quick for my audience? Yeah, sure. A daisy chain, I mean, that's what I call it. But, you know, it, it happens a lot in, in the wholesale industry where some guy will get a property under contract and he'll tell his friend Joe. And Joe will say, oh, well, I know a guy who wants to buy a house. So I'll buy it from you for, you know, two dollars. Then I'm gonna sell it to this other guy for three dollars. And then that guy actually wants to sell it to another guy for four dollars. And the next thing you know, you have this long chain of buyers and sellers that stretches on forever. And nine times out of ten, the whole thing falls apart. It's just too many people removed. Now, having said that, I have done some deals where this has actually worked, but it can get a little bit too hairy and dicey. I I try and take that out by just specifically telling people you can't do that or making their, their earnest money non-refundable. That gets people serious pretty quickly. You don't send like a, a blast email to like an email buyers list, right? I do. I'll okay. let them know. I'll let them know that, that we're going to do this. And sometimes, you know, people will come at me with an attractive enough offer that I won't bother with doing the open house. But usually I, I, I like to do the open house. It lets people see what they're dealing with. It gets more and more people out into the property. You get a lot of people very into, I mean, I've had hundreds of people at these open houses. Uh, it's it's crazy. And it, if you do it the right way where you, you really work getting the you know getting the word out you'll get a lot of people there and and mr market does his miracle <laughs> the, the the right price gets set up and everyone's happy hey real quick i want to introduce you to my free daily newsletter where i give out free daily tips to real estate investing strategies marketing and sales techniques to keep you the part-time investor moving forward every day so head on over to realestateaudios.com and you'll get a free report along with that free daily newsletter. And for the last 10 years that you've been doing this, is there always a big market for these deals? Do you get hundreds of people at the open house? Well, no. I mean, I didn't start really doing wholesale very seriously until 2016, 2017, something like that. Prior to that, I was still finding opportunities to add to my own portfolio and put buyers and or find attractive rental houses and, and use it as a buy and hold strategy. But then just recently, it's it's just made a lot more sense in terms of not having to have a lot of debt, not having to have a mortgage, and not having to spend a lot of my uh, powder trying to acquire buy and hold for these, what I consider to be somewhat inflated prices around Atlanta. And instead, just make a quick buck selling it to another investor and tell them, hey, best of luck with it and I hope it all makes sense for you. And when there is a change in, in the market, prices go down, are you going to flip that to uh, holding some property now? I think I would. Uh, you know, I'm always on the lookout for it if people will let me. A lot of these wholesale deals that I end up doing, I think it just works out this way, is that you have sellers who've got a, a property where there's a significant problem and it needs a new plumbing system or there's a you know there's an issue with mold or something like that so they've they've done something to the house that needs a certain amount of renovation that they can't afford they don't have the money for it so i come in there and fix that now if someone has a, a house that's just sitting there empty and there's nothing really wrong with it well obviously they don't they don't need to sell it to an investor at that point they need to you know they can put it on the market for retail and and see what they can do but i'm constantly asking people you know well what's the plan here what do you need i mean do you do you 
are you looking for cash flow? Are you looking for for cash? I mean, wh- what do you want? And I can work backwards with you and, and see if we can make a business. But it all comes down to just how how motivated is the seller. But I would be happy to if someone would offer me owner financing or a lease option or something like that. I'm always always happy to uh, take them up on it. Do they usually they're the first ones to bring that up? A, a creative method of selling it, or do you bring that option up? I usually, generally speaking, just when I talk to a seller initially, I just listen and hear what they have to say. What's the problem? Why is this? What's the uh, Pete Fortunato? Why are you selling a beautiful house like this? (laughs) (laughs) What's the deal? What's going on? And, And they'll tell you, they'll explain to you exactly what's happening. And most people, 80%, 90% of all sellers are just going to say, hey, listen, I just want cash. I want out of this. And, you know, you don't try and talk them into doing something that, that doesn't make sense. And if the market conditions change, where all of a sudden there's not as many buyers, well, then you, you do have more of a argument to them that, hey, listen, I think it makes more sense doing it this way because of the fact that I don't know if I can find a buyer out there. And, you know, the market conditions, they'll change. It's like the ocean. It's constantly changing one way or another. So uh, I think those opportunities will come back along. Are you giving them an offer on your first visit with them? I try to. I try and tell people, hey, listen, this is what I can do for you. And, you know, if people aren't ready, I like to give them several options. And by several options, I mean, you know, two or three. I I find if if you try and get too clever after that, then you just confuse people. So just say, hey, listen, I can do it. Option A, I can do option B, or I can do option C. Which one would you prefer? And people respond. Generally, are those two or three offers? So you got you have cash offer, mm-hmm. but you may have, what are some other options that you've presented? I've said to them, first of all, what's the overall objective here? And, and you know, a lot of people are just going to tell you, we want out. You know, we, we don't want to own it anymore and all the rest of it. Okay, well, if I, can, if I could do this for a cash price, this is probably the best I can do. But if you're willing to offer me some seller financing, I can do it this way. Or you could say that here's the cash price and this is the lowest price that I'm going to offer you. There's one a step above it that's, you know, significant, big down payment, but the number's not as big. You know, the end sales price is not as big. Or there's the no money down approach on the on the third option. And I'll give you a, a really big sales price or something like that. Yeah. And I've seen this done quite a bit. I mean, this is basically what cable companies do, right? When they, or any mm. kind of company, the sales, salesmen come to your door and they have an option for some product. So if you do get it under contract for say uh, 10 grand down so much a month, is so, a total seller finance deal. Is that an easy sell at the back end too? I think it's a pretty difficult sale for people these days because well, I think it's a difficult sale in, in, in any type of environment because people don't know who you are. You have to be able to show them that, hey, I'm a trustworthy guy. I'll make sure that I, I make the payments to you. But I think it's always worth doing. It's it's just, I think a lot of people at this stage in the market are, are I need to sell and cash out and, and tap out. I found people who are, who will consider owner financing. A lot of people are landlords themselves and they own a portfolio and they want to stretch out their income from it. They don't need a lot of cash all at once, but they're in their seventies right now. And they, they just need cash flow for the next 15, 20 years as they're slowly transitioning from, you know, active landlording to something more passive. Okay. And is that, that's your primary um, type of lead right there? Is that absentee landlords? 
Yeah, you know, I, I would say there's a significant percentage of, of absentee landlords. I generally speaking, how I find my opportunities is I drive around at, or walk around or bicycle around or, or what have you and just just go down the streets very, very slowly and you'll you'll spot the houses. You'll find them. I mean, they're they're out there. It's like, ah, well, what's going on with that house? Why is that house sitting empty? And then I hop out of the car and do some door knock and try and figure out from the neighbors if anybody knows what's going on with the property. You can learn a ton of information that way. A lot of information that way. Yeah. Let's talk about lead generation in, sure. in a bit. But first, let me ask you, um, what's your specific formula for coming up with an offer, a cash offer? You know, generally speaking, it's kind of back of the envelope for me. I, I know like you can't ever really go wrong by saying, all right, 60 to 70 cents on the dollar. It's just top of my head. That's what I'll offer. But I always try and get the seller to tell me, all right, what's your price? What do you, what do you want to sell this thing for? And as soon as they tell me that, I can work backwards from there and figure out a price that that makes sense. If you are fortunate enough that you've got a lot of cash in your in your background, be it with a financial friend or a silent partner or something like that, you can still make some really great deals these days. I mean, uh, telling people, hey, here's my cash price and we'll close in seven days as soon as the title comes back. That goes a long way towards uh, motivating people. So, you know, having the ability to act quick like that, that's a huge leg up on people. But yeah, my offers are generally speaking right around 60 to 70 cents on the dollar or whatever I can get away with. It's a negotiation. I had an opportunity last year with somebody where they had a house and the property was falling apart. They'd moved out. And I think the balance on the mortgage was something like they had 80,000 left on the mortgage. And I tried to get them to do seller financing with me. They didn't want to do it. And I said, well, I'll structure this deal that I want you all to get some more out of it, but I don't have any cash to give you. So let's take the balance of the mortgage and anything I get above the balance of the mortgage, I'll split it with you 50-50. And they ended up doing that. So it ended up being a, a great opportunity for both sides to make some money. And I just had to clean up the property, get it ready for sale. And we all went all along our merry way. And they were happy. I was happy. So, so that was like more of like a, a partnership and where, uh, hey, we're going to split the my profits. Is that right? Did I get that yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it basically was using their equity for my profit and they just wanted out and the property needed just enough repairs and stuff like that, that, you know, I really couldn't tell you how much it was, how much I'd be willing to pay for it. But I thought, well, you know, I bet we can get at least 150 out of it. And I wouldn't be surprised if we could get 175. So you told them you can give them a cash price of 110, but you told them you could probably resell it for 150 and then offer them to split that profit with them? Yep, exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Did you wholesale yep. that one? I did. I don't like getting into the guts of homes and, and trying to, you know, there was a busted pipe in there and there was mold and stuff like that. So I didn't want to be on the hook for fixing all that stuff. And then especially with, st with stuff like mold. I don't ever want to be, you know, put a tenant in there and then all of a sudden her daughter develops asthma and you're on the hook for it. So I just yeah. said, look, I'm getting rid of this. And, but, but told the, told the sellers uh, straight out, you know, look, I think there's, you know, we have an opportunity here or there's an opportunity here for somebody to get the sales price to about 170. And so initially they came back at me and said, well, our sales price is 170. And I said, well, I have to make some money on this deal <laughs> for me to help you out. You know, you need to help me. And we worked our way backwards from there. And, and they were the ones who ended up saying to me, whatever we get over the mortgage balance, we'll split 50, 50. I would have taken 
much less than that, but they, that's what they offered me. And yeah, we can do that. <laughs> yeah. You sold it at 150 to um, a guy that was going to flip it. How much did that guy flip it for? You know, that one, what ended up happening was a guy had some 1031 money. And so he ended up, he had a bunch of property that he sold and he ended up exchanging into that property for, I mean, I think he, that actually, that one actually did end up becoming a daisy chain. And I think he ended up getting into that one for about, you know, 195 or something like that. Yeah. I had it for, I think my, my strike price was at 175 or something like that. So there's a way to make a, a really good fee for everyone involved and the seller was happy. I was happy. And the, the end user I'm sure was happy because his basis on the other properties was so much lower. So he got a prime rental in a, in a prime neighborhood of Atlanta and everyone was happy. How do you come up? Uh, do you have a formula for coming up with uh, the repairs that needed? I will probably admit that's not my best skill, but I've got a pretty good idea on everything. I can look at something and say, that's probably going to be somewhere around, if you're lucky, it'll be 30. And why don't you add on some fat to the the bill? Because it might it might end up being something like 50. And, that, and that's why I don't flip. It seems like everybody I know says the same thing. They estimate way too low on the repairs and, and or how much time it's going to take. And then the next thing I know, they're, they're over budget and that just ruins your cash flow. I can go into a house and tell you what's wrong. And I'm, I'm good at taking a house. For instance, that one we were just talking about, there was mold all over it and there was a busted pipe. So I think I spent, you know, seven days on the inside of the house and cut the sheetrock out and took the plumbing apart to a point where I could show people, hey, this is what's wrong. You know, you can see it with your own two eyes. You're talking about with the seller, when you're negotiating with the seller, you're there with them. Is that what you're talking about? On that last example, I was just telling you about where they had a busted pipe in there. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I went under the option contract, I explained to the seller, hey, look, you know, you, and they still had all their, their furniture was in there covered with mold and all around. You know, so I went in there and, and threw out all their stuff, ripped up the carpets, you know, got the house prepped so that you know an investor can step in at that point and just finish off the job real quick and it looked a lot less ugly when i got done with it because i had it all prepared for them i've never heard that before so you have it under contract mm -hmm. it's in escrow and you're going ahead and taking things apart demoing some things mm -hmm. and your people are allowed to do that i thought you can't touch it until it's done with escrow if you put it in the contract, you know, this is, this is, Hey, look, I'm going to get this thing ready. I, I have a, you know, a, a, I call it a dragnet clause. It's like, I'm going to do everything that's required to get this thing ready to sell for as much money as possible. And they sign off on it and that's it. You know I mean? Or, you know, if it's somebody else's possessions, it's helping people in particular with the deals that I'm talking about right now. It's, these are people who've got a problem with a house, you know, their husband split town and left and all his stuff is still in the house. So, I mean, like there's legal ways that you can write into the contract saying, all right, look, I'll take care of this. There was another one I did one time where a lady had her father was moving into assisted living and they needed to sell the house quick because they didn't have any money. And so, I ended up coming in with a moving truck and boxing up all his stuff and, and getting it out of the house. And then we did a wholesale deal real quick. But, you know, you, you have to do that stuff, facilitate it. And it wasn't, you know, it's costing me money. I mean, I, I paid for the moving truck. I paid for the to move it out of there. But it created a lot of goodwill for the seller because they don't have to come up with any cash. That's what mostly when people are in this situation where they have to do a wholesale deal like this, it's because there's a problem. There's not enough money and they need money. And, you know, so you, you find a solution that way. 
That is very interesting, actually, because um, so you're instead of what most wholesalers do, they just put it under contract in the hopes that they're going to get somebody at 80%, 90% on the dollar, and they drag it out for 30, 60, 90 days. You're already, you solved the problem from day one. Correct. Yeah. I think you have to. I mean, you know, you, ha- you have to listen to people and hear what they have to say. And if you're formulaic about the whole thing and just telling people, hey, this is what I can do and only this, you're just limiting yourself. So you have to take it to the next level and really listen to what they're saying and say, okay, well, sounds to me like, you know, here's your problem and I can, I'll do this, this, and this and do it. And you've created a lot of goodwill and you're providing a a valuable service for people. And obviously anything that you agree to do, write it down (laughs) and put it in the contract. But yeah, no, I mean, it it creates goodwill and, and solves problems. Is Atlanta a competitive market with a bunch of wholesalers? Yeah, I would say it's a pretty competitive market right now. I, I, you know, there's not too many markets out there from, I'm friends with investors across the country. I don't don't hear of too many markets right now. They're not experiencing a a similar type, but it's hot right now everywhere. So Yeah. Okay. So that's one way that you kind of put yourself ahead above everybody else. Any other things you do that gives you a little advantage over all the other wholesalers? I think it's more just what we've been talking about prior to is just, you know, listen to people and you have two ears and one mouth. So listen to them. And when you come up with solutions, really think about it and and spend time thinking about here's one way I can help you. And here's another way I can help you. And, you know, we can do it this way. We can do it that way. And it's a dialogue, you know, it's a conversation that you're having with people and if you do it the right way, people will, will respond and they'll like you and don't ever be desperate to do a deal. I mean, it's, you can't force anything from people. They'll end up every single negotiation I've gone into with, with sellers where these wholesale deals make sense. I craft a good deal and it's through conversation and talking and, and having this dialogue with the seller that results in a good settlement for everybody. That's what the definition of a fair deal is. It's everyone walks away satisfied. You mentioned that um, you work your, your way backwards. You ask them about the price. Now, I've done that, and um, mm-hmm. uh, probably 90%, if not all of them, have always given you know given a full retail price, probably gone to Zillow, or give some way overestimated price. So how do you get them to work that down? I always ask them, how did you determine that price? Tell me how this works. Where are you getting your numbers from on this? And then they'll explain. And a lot of the time it's in the nature of the beast. You're, you know, you're not gonna be able to do every deal. There's unreasonable people out there who just are convinced that their property is worth a million dollars and they're not going to take a nickel less. And those people you can't, all right, sorry. You know, I just, the best of luck to you. If it it doesn't work out, let me know and I'll, I'll be happy to help you out. But there's other people out there who, who need to sell and they need to sell quick and you can work backwards from there to find a solution for them. Is there a rate you find like for every person you visit, maybe 10 of those you get a deal? I wish it was that good. It's probably more than that, I think. But it's not a one touch and go solution. You know, I mean, there's a there's people who you talk to. And one I was just telling you about where I split the 50-50 deal with the sellers. I think I contacted them in April of the year before. And then a full year later, they texted me out of the blue saying, hey, I think we're ready to sell. And I'll tell you what's hilarious about this is they said, we're, we're ready to sell. We're going to have three investors come by to the house. And I was the only one who showed up. Just do your job, folks. You know, I mean, like, if you're going to invest in real estate, show up. That's half the battle. 
so yeah, I mean, that's the, that, that's the type of thing. I mean, you just, you never know with the, I call it planting seeds, you know, you, you find ways to stay in contact with people. And, and as you move forward, it might, it might one day end up being a great deal. You have to stay in touch and, and let people know that you're, you're still interested and, and Hey, if we can do business here, let's do it. But a lot of people I'm noticing right now in the Atlanta market, and I'm sure it's the same across the country is there's a lot of people who have homes who are, they're not real estate investors, or maybe they decided they might be real estate investors and they have one bad experience and then they just don't know what to do next. And so the homes just sit there empty. It's crazy, but it's true. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing these days is, is finding these empty homes where they're not on the market and you know what are you doing here what's the plan and you can find a lot of opportunity if you if you stick to that that furrow yeah and i love that uh, showing up is half the battle and uh <laughs> i've been uh, across so many situations like that sellers talk about how they got this offer this offer but the question is well why haven't you taken it i'm here now right. you know so, <laughs> so your creative finance deals the ones that you put together seller finance sub two partnerships equity splits especially the seller finance ones, are you able to sell those to the, your buyers easily when you do your open houses or how, however you sell them? Well, no, because if I'm creating something that's unique, I haven't tried to yet, and, I, and I, but I'd be reluctant to do it because you have to spend so much time gaining your seller's trust that to then say, okay, well, then I'm going to take a step out of this and I'm going to bring you together with somebody else who you don't know. I think you run the risk of killing the deal. Now, that's not to say that I wouldn't try it, but it would have to be the right right opportunity at the right time to make that happen. I feel like you need to maintain control over any opportunity like that. So if there's a if you have an opportunity to have some great seller financing or a master lease or something like that, that's fine. Just write the paperwork so that you're in control. You're in the middle of the deal no matter what, and you're not assigning anything or trying to get yourself out of it. So then what's the, the exit strategy for those ones you pick up with terms with seller financing or sub two? Right now, I don't have any subject to in my in my portfolio because it doesn't really make sense at this point in the market to to. I don't know why a seller would. Not not saying that you know there might be some out there who will, but I haven't come across any right now. Just because the the, the market being the way it is, it's it's such a you know the prices are so are so high. Uh, it would be hard for me to. If a seller would give it to me, great. I'll take it all day long. But there's a lot of people out there who just say, "Well, I'm just going to put it on the market and and do it that way." But you know, I mean, like again, I've got I've got one coming up next week where I'm meeting with some folks out there. There, it's a typical one that I've I've been describing to you. It's a brother and sister, and they inherited the house from dad. The house is literally falling apart. It's in a wonderful section of Atlanta. And I'm definitely going to throw out there, hey, look, you know, one way we could do this, because you guys seem to think this property is worth a quarter million dollars. It's, it's not. But we could do it that way if you do some seller financing with me and, you know, I'll give you this much down and we'll horse trade like that and just and see what happens. You actually do a hold on to these yourself. Sometimes. Yeah. If there's an opportunity to do so, I will I will definitely do it. Or, yeah, I mean, there's there's ones that I've done that there was one I had a master lease on a quadplex that I had to write a first refusal on. I couldn't get an option. I couldn't get him to give me owner financing, but he said, well, I'll let you lease it. 
So I had that. And then eventually somebody came at this guy with a huge number and I had to write a first refusal. And I said, well, I don't really think it's worth that much, but if you can get it, go for it. <laughs> so, Has master leasing given you a pretty good, decent cash flow income every month? On this particular one, it was okay. Uh, we were doing short-term vacation rentals with it and it was a lot of work, too much work. Uh, so I'd be, I'd be reluctant to get back into short-term rentals without a better program for it. But I think there's lots of opportunity with property management. I have not pursued it as much as I should just because I'm a one-man operation, but I'm looking to partner with people who want to explore more opportunities in, in Atlanta for master leasing. Because I, I really do think that if you can, if you can manage tenants and manage landlords, you can find ways to make some money. When you're starting out, what were some of your struggles and how did you solve that? Well, I got thrown into it more or less because I've always kind of been my own, you know, rambling guy. I've, I've, I've done, I farmed Christmas trees. I've retailed all sorts of farm products and stuff like that. And I, I liked real estate and, you know, step by step, I just realized, okay, I'm, I'm unemployable. So I got to keep on finding my own lockout here. And it just sort of slowly evolved from that. And, and that the, the more I'm out there on the road trying to find more opportunities, the more opportunities I see and continue to try and insert myself in the middle of these, of these deals. But you have to keep trying. You got to keep plugging away. I think a lot of people get, they try to get into real estate. They, they can't find any opportunities. And so they end up just sort of quitting, but you gotta, you know, you gotta go out there and walk the streets and drive the miles and knock on the doors and, and do all those sort of things. And it, it snowballs on you. you know, I mean, the more deals you do, the more people you meet, the more opportunities come your way. It just kind of, kind of picks up like that. And I would say to everybody who's, who's struggling right now, I mean, look, it's a tough market everywhere. I mean, I don't, I don't know of a single asset class right now that is not in real estate. And again, the stock market, all the rest I mean, everything's at a, a very high high right now. Now, how long will that continue? Your guess is as good as mine, but I, I don't. I think things that that go up this high tend to have the reverse effect at some point or another. How long did it take you to find your first deal? I think when I started to really start looking for this, you know, all right, we're going to do, and you know, and again, keep in mind, I wasn't saying I'm going to go out there and and wholesale, but when I when I got to a point where I said, you know, look. I need to really pound the pavement and find a good real estate opportunity in, I think it was 2017 when I really started doing it. And um, let me think, I probably did, yeah, I, mean, I looked at 200 houses or something like that before I finally found one that, and again, I went into it saying, this is going to be another buy and hold. This is going to be something I'm going to add to my portfolio. I'm going to spend all my cash on this to acquire it. So I negotiated this great deal and still had some cash reserves to, to do the repairs. And that's when my friend mentioned to me, hey, why don't you try and put a for sale sign out there and see if you can make some quick cash. And I did. And then it worked great. And, it, and I didn't have to end up spending a lot of my dry powder on just one deal. So I could keep moving and look for more deals after that. And since then, it's just been kind of the same thing. It's just getting a lot of phone calls and going out there and sussing it out, seeing if I can, I can create an opportunity. 200 houses for that first deal. That's a lot of houses. That's a lot of time. Yeah, a lot of those people think it's going to be, I remember the first 10 or you know, 50 or you just, you're, you arms up in the air. Like I can't find a deal, but you took 200 houses to find a first deal. 
Easily. And, you know, I mean, again, I, I think I was lucky. I mean, I think the the opportunity that I found with this, with the one that was out there was great. And, you know, sometimes you get that, that fat, slow pitch over the plate and, you know, you knock it out of the park. And that's what I think most people don't realize is that you don't want to pursue these marginal deals. I mean, if, if I can't figure out a way to make five figures on a wholesale deal, I'm not going to do it. It's too much work. So, that's where a lot of wholesalers get in trouble is they just pursue not really good deals. And they, you know, and, and they get in these, uh, like I said, the daisy chain and stuff like that, where just the whole thing gets strung out and they, they don't allow themselves enough time and good enough terms to really make money doing it. I get opportunities thrown across my emails all day long and I'm just looking at these things and who would buy this stuff? (laughs) But some people do. Awesome, dude. I appreciate being here, man. It was a really great conversation. You gave some nuggets in this, so I really do appreciate it, Jeff. Cool. Well, thank you for having me. All right, that's a wrap. Before you go, let me add here. Whether you're in the buy and hold strategy, wholesaling, flipping, mobile homes, land, or whatever it is, after I ventured in a lot of these niches here, While working a W-2 job and building some cash flow streams, I've learned that focus and gaining some actual traction for a long-lasting business is the biggest problem for busy investors. So that's why I have for you daily email tips that can boost not just your lead generation, but your focus in your venture. So head on over to realestateaudios.com for those free gifts, a free newsletter, and the mentioned resources in these interviews. Thanks for listening and keep moving forward every day.